This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened uh, to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So I believe that this is our second to last sermon uh, in this series. We've been going through many of the passages uh, unique to Luke's gospel. And so this week and next week, we're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 24. Uh, We're in that chapter of Luke's gospel that is post-resurrection. So that's why I wore a pastel-colored shirt uh, today. I got my days mixed up. I realized that today's Easter in our series. And so while a lot of you will celebrate Easter in a few weeks, I'm celebrating it. Uh, today. So for a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the events in Jesus's life uh, after being raised from the dead on the third day. And in short, in summary, at the very beginning, our text this morning, this, this famous text of the walk to Emmaus, it, it teaches us, us this. So, so listen closely. That there is great benefit, there is great personal benefit to our lives now When we believe that there is great personal benefit to our lives now, when we believe and to the extent we believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. 
I did not say that this text teaches us that there is great benefit to our lives because of the resurrection of Jesus, although that's clearly true. I said that there's great personal benefit when we believe that the resurrection happened. I have two ideas from our text today, two longer points instead of three shorter points. Uh, First, the benefits of belief, and second, the bolstering of belief. I want to first consider some of the benefits obvious in our text that are ours in the here and now when we believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened in history. And then I want to talk about the the, the bolstering of belief. I want to talk about the means by which belief grows inside of us so that if we want those benefits, we can not just hear of the benefits with belief, but we can learn how belief increases uh, in us. All right, so first, the benefit uh, of belief, the benefits, plural, of belief. If you look at your text, I'm going to kind of walk you through the story here. Uh, Luke says in verse 13, that very day, uh, two of them, headed out from Jerusalem uh, towards Emmaus. And we know that uh, that very day is the first day of the week. It's it's the day of Jesus' resurrection. We learn that in verse 1 of chapter 24. Two of them uh, refers to Jesus' followers, those who are gathered uh, in Jerusalem uh, in the upper room. So these two were close uh, with Jesus. And presumably, these two are going back home. And while they travel, uh, the resurrected Jesus, verse 15, drew near to them and started traveling with them. But, verse 16, they did not know that it was him. And then Luke uses three phrases to describe uh, the emotional, you might say, and the spiritual, you might say, state of these two. And this is prior to them believing the resurrection happened. First, they're sad. Verse 17, Jesus asks, what are y'all talking about? It says, and they stood still looking sad. Literally, they stood still with a gloomy countenance. And Luke is a fantastic uh, storyteller. He's showing physically uh, that they're depressed. He doesn't just say they were sad. He shows they're sad. Think about when we're sad, when we're depressed, when our proverbial dauber is down. We feel stuck. Uh, We feel like we're standing still. We feel like we're operating underwater. Uh, We feel as though the energy it would take to get out of bed or to get off the couch is is so massive, we might not even, uh, might as well not even try. They're sad. Second, they're hopeless. So unbeknownst to them, they, they tell Jesus about Jesus. There's several ironic twists in the narrative. But verse 19, Jesus was a powerful prophet in deed and word. Verse 20, but our leaders delivered, condemned, and crucified him. Uh, Verse 21, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Not we're, we're hoping, but we had hoped. They're presently hopeless. Now think about this. In their explanation of Jesus, they were convinced that he lived, and they were convinced that he died but they did not believe his resurrection. Sad and hopeless. Sounds like a fun, fun road trip. Finally, verse 22, they're bewildered. Moreover, some of our women, uh, some of the women in our company, uh, quote, amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. The body was not there. They said angels told them that Jesus was raised and that he was alive. But, you know, you can't trust women. Verse 24, So some of our men went to the tomb, and it was empty, but him they did not see. 
And now again, the hymn that they did not see is the hymn walking and talking with them. The word amazed, verse 22, literally means to stand beside yourself, to stand outside of yourself. It's, it's the two Greek words jammed together. It means to be confused, to be disoriented, to be dizzy, to be out of your mind, to be bewildered. Listen closely. This is the state of those, and I speak generally at this point. This is the state of those who believe that Jesus lived and that he died, but disbelieve, doubt, and forget that he's been resurrected. So, so Jesus, in the presence of this sadness and in the presence of this hopelessness and in the presence of this disorientation, he calls out their unbelief. Verse 25, you fools. You're not believing in the resurrection of the Christ. Verse 26, the prophets told you the Messiah had to live, he had to suffer, he had to die, but he had to do all of that so he could really and truly enter into his glory. The death of Jesus was not a loss to Jesus. It was the necessary path for his victory. And Jesus says of their pathetic emotional state, he said, that's a result of unbelief in the resurrection. Now, we're going to look more at how in our second point, but let me just simply say this. If you look down at verse 32, at the end of the narrative, they're filled with faith. They're hot with belief. And look at the benefit of that belief in their life. Look at the experience in their life from faith. Verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted or pretended as if he was going farther. There's something cultural going on here. Verse 29, but they urged him strongly. The word means they forced him contrary to his choice. Okay, So again, culturally, what's happening here is Jesus is pretending to go on to not bother them. But in that culture, to compel hospitality at night was very honorable. But I just want you to notice the difference. These two who did not have faith were so tired they couldn't walk anymore. And now they're strongly, physically urging Jesus, stay with us. Further, when Jesus vanishes, even though they thought traveling at night was a bad idea for Jesus, they're so motivated to go back to the seven, uh, to the seven miles uh, to Jerusalem uh, to share the hope with the fellow followers of Jesus. They're so uh, motivated to go back and tell them of the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they go uh, not caring what might happen to them. And they get there, and Luke tells us that their friends energetically told him, hey, a man saw Jesus, so we know he's alive. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I would not dare say these things in a sermon if I wasn't going to come back to it. And they, verse, I would dare, but I was younger then. And they, verse 35, joined in the celebration and told their experience. Don't miss the point. In terms of energy, and I mean physical energy, and in terms of emotion, there is great personal benefit to believing that Jesus was raised Now, again, uh, Cleopas and his companion, they gained incredible things in the actual resurrection of Jesus. You might say they gained incredible theological benefits in Jesus's victory over death. We're going to talk about those in a minute. But the personal or the existential or the experiential benefit to their lives uh, was tied to their belief in the resurrection and not tied to the resurrection itself. Belief was the hinge. Look at it. As they go from unbelief in verse 25 to belief in verse 32, they go from sadness to joy, weakness to strength, confused disorientation to steadfast confidence, from hopelessness 
to hopefulness. These are the benefits of believing and remembering, not just that Jesus was alive and that he died, but also and primarily he's been raised again. Now let's think about it. Let's think, how might belief in Jesus' resurrection benefit my life? Okay, I think there are far more than what I have time for here, but three ideas to ponder. Why our belief in the resurrection of Jesus can give us joy in our justification, can give us hope in our glorification, and can give us confidence in our sanctification. Big words, all biblical. I'm going to explain them. First, joy in our justification. The biblical term justification means to be declared righteous by God. Paul says this in Romans 4, that Jesus was delivered up. It's the same word as verse 20 in our text. He was delivered up. He was killed for our trespasses. And then he says, and he was raised for our justification. And so Paul is saying that our justification, the declaration of God to us, that we're okay, that declaration is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Our text says in verse 20 that Jesus was condemned to death and he was crucified, although he never sinned. And so Paul reminds us that Jesus was delivered up because we sinned and he died in our place. But also when God raised him up from the dead, Paul says, that's when you were justified. You were declared righteous. God was saying about Jesus's life, he does not deserve to die. He does not deserve to be under the power of sin. His life was beautiful. His life was righteous. I'm bringing him back. And because Jesus was raised, it's because of that, because he's no longer under the power of death, we can know that he lived perfectly. And if at the cross, our sin was credited to him, that means at the resurrection, his righteousness is then credited to us. And so when the Bible says that in his raising up, we're justified, the Bible is telling us that we're accepted by God, that we're enjoyed by God, that we're approved of by God, that God sees us as a beloved child, that none of us deserve this, none of us could hold on to it, none of us could keep it, but in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have it. So in the resurrection, you have justification. The extent to which you believe that resurrection, you have joy in the place of sadness. Can you see how believing that you're justified, that God's okay with you, uh, that, that God delights in you, that God, um, that, that God is passionately wild about you, Can you see how that can turn any sadness into joy? Second, second benefit in the here and now to believing the resurrection of Jesus, hopefulness and our glorification. Jesus says in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be raised. So a few weeks ago, uh, one morning, I saw one flower on my azalea bushes. And what that one flower told me, what that first fruit told me, is that there was certainly more to come. And Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection is, is first fruits. That if Jesus was raised, you can be certain in your faith you're united to him, and one day you too will be raised to eternal life. That if he is now in glory, you one day will be in glory. The Bible calls our glorification this time and this place and this space where we will live in perfect bodies. 
We will live in a perfect and beautiful new creation. We will live life only with other perfect people physically and spiritually. We'll be in the glorious presence of a perfect God. We will experience absolute worship, bliss, joy, gladness, utter peace in every relationship. There will be no pain, including pain from the past, which means the pain of today will not be there. There will be no loss, including a loss and an experience of the loss of the past. And so any loss today will not be there. There will be no sadness, including sadness from past sadness. So the sadness of today will not be there. It will come untrue. And so if you're a Christian, you will in the future be resurrected into glorification. Question, can you see how your hopefulness now is not tied to whether or not Jesus was actually raised but is tied to the extent to which you believe that he was raised. Glorification comes not because you believe, but because he was raised. But your experience of that hopefulness now is tied to your belief. Lastly, belief in the resurrection of Jesus gives us confidence in our sanctification. Think, uh, think with me, I'll, just, I'll skip the part in Luke, but think with me about Ephesians 1, our, our call to worship today. All right, If you need to, you can get your text back out. It's thick. Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus. He says, I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened to the resurrection of Jesus. He says, verse 18, I want you to know the hope. We just talked about this. The hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then Paul goes on in verse 19 and he says this. This is talking about your growth in character. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe, towards present tense, those who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And Paul is teaching us this, the same power of God that overcame death and raised Jesus to life is the power of God at work in you now, sanctifying you, changing you, making you human, making you new. And so if you're wondering if God has the power to change you and transform you and sanctify you and deliver you and giving you a new life, Paul says in verse 9 of Ephesians 1, that power is unleashed in you to the extent you believe. God is going to sanctify you because Jesus was raised. Your confidence in that sanctification goes up to the extent you believe. I heard a young pastor give a great illustration for this. And uh, he, he had always wondered uh, how circus elephants uh, could be contained or bound uh, by a simple chain or a simple rope, and uh, a rope, you know, maybe just connected to a stake, maybe just simply stuck in the ground. And he always wondered why the elephant didn't realize that within them they had more than enough power to be free. And so he said he was so intrigued by this as a young man, he did some research, and he found out uh, that circus elephants are born in captivity, and that the circus trains them very early on to believe that they can never be free. That at first, an elephant by instinct will struggle to be free. And so the trainer will put a very, very heavy chain or a very large rope around their neck, and they'll contain, they'll, excuse me, connect that chain or that, that rope to, to a very heavy stake, and they'll bury that stake deep in concrete. But the day that the elephant stops tugging and pulling and fighting, that is the day that all they have to do is put a simple rope around his neck, connect it to a stake, and put it in sand. And he learned that from that point on, the elephant will never try to become free. 
will never believe that within him is the power to be free from what enslaves him. Paul's saying that's the picture of a believer enslaved to sin. He says, because of past experiences, we believe that there's not enough power within us to be free. But Paul says in Ephesians 1, the dynamite power of God is unleashed. What was unleashed in history at the resurrection of Jesus is the same, quote, immeasurably great power towards and in us now who believe. Back to the point. If you don't believe or if you don't remember often enough that Jesus was raised, you'll be disoriented, you'll be confused. But there's great existential, emotional, energetic benefit to you believing that the justification, excuse me, the, the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. In that, you have confidence in your sanctification. You have hopefulness in your glorification. You have joy in your justification. Now, I would want you to think about this today and this week. I'm not saying that all sadness, hopelessness, and disorientation is rooted in not believing or not remembering the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm asking you to simply consider this. Is it possible that some or even much of our sadness, hopelessness, and disorientation is rooted in the fact that we don't really believe the resurrection of Jesus actually happened? Or we don't take ourselves back to that truth and remember it often. I know for me, I cannot say my sadness and my disorientation and my disillusionment is something other than remembering the resurrection because I haven't yet gotten to the point where I'm regularly remembering the power of God unleashed that day in history. And so if our benefit Our personal existential benefit is tied not to the historic event, but our belief in that event. Point two, how do we bolster faith? How does faith grow? If faith is this hinge in which we get to experience these realities, how does that happen? Okay, now, now the Bible uh, teaches what you and I know to be true, that, that belief and that faith is a matter of both your head and your heart. It's a matter of you thinking, and it's a matter of you trusting. Okay, so in Christianity, you have beliefs and you have to believe. There is an objective cognitive level regarding facts and there is an existential personal level regarding experience. Many pastors, I think starting with C.S. Lewis, uh, used this illustration before me. It's the chair illustration. It's to help define faith or belief with these two realities in mind. And the illustration goes like this, to, to imagine that you're exhausted from running a long distance race and you come across a chair. And, and before you find rest in that chair, you essentially have to do two things, whether you do it uh, so quickly you don't think about it or whether you stop and ponder it. But, but two things have to happen. First, uh, you have to look at the legs of the chair. You have to look at the size of the chair. You have to look at the sturdiness of the chair. You You have to look at the thoughtful people around you enjoying similar chairs. Before you sit in it and have rest, your head has to compute whether or not the chair can actually hold you. But second, before you actually find rest in that chair, what do you have to do? Sit. You have to sit down. Faith, belief is not just beliefs, but it's also believing. It's not just understanding, but it's also trusting. And so Jesus is saying this in verse 25. Think about what he says again. He says, you foolish ones. What's that talking about? 
the mind, you non-understanding ones, and you slow of heart to believe. Mind and heart, belief and believing. And so the bolstering of your belief, in order to see our, our, our faith rise, I want to speak uh, for a moment to the level of our mind, and then I want to speak for a moment to the level of our heart. And for our faith in the resurrection to go up, uh, functionally, for those of us who haven't doubted the historic resurrection for a while, for us to actually believe it, for, for that faith to go up, we have to do two things. We have to listen to the eyewitnesses, and we have to walk with Jesus for a while. Okay, you have to inspect the chair, and then you have to sit down to know for sure. All right, first, you have to listen to the eyewitnesses. So Luke in chapter 1, he makes it very clear that his claim is that he is writing journalistic history. He says that this is a compilation of eyewitness testimony. So older, more, more modern, you might say, attacks on, on the gospel writers said that the gospel writers were just trying to write fiction. They were just writing legend, that we, we take them too seriously. But now, even uh, those scholars who are not believers have pointed out that the Gospels are nothing like the legends and the myths of Greco-Roman culture. And so that argument against the Gospels has pretty much gone away. The more recent attack on the Gospels, what you might call the postmodern attacks on the Gospels, says that Luke is intentionally lying. That as a follower of Jesus, after his death, uh, Luke and others wanted to be in control, and so they wrote the Gospels as a, quote, will to power, claiming to write history. But again, even scholars who are not believers are now acknowledging there's no way Luke is intentionally lying. If he were intentionally lying, he would never choose these eyewitnesses. Think about the incredible irony in this text. I can't ignore it any longer. By and large, women in Luke, across 24 chapters, they're protagonists. They're heroes. They're the good guys. They're trustworthy. By and large, across Luke, men are not. But also, uh, Peter, the one that everyone believes in verse 34, just a few days before this, lied about his relationship to Jesus three times. Do you see the irony in that? The bottom line is this. Look at these eyewitnesses to the Gospels. Every gospel tells us that women were the first to discover the empty tomb. John tells us that it was a woman who first saw Jesus resurrected. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, women could not testify in court in this culture. In our story, the women are doubted and not believed. Verse 23. Think about what I'm trying to say. If Luke and the other gospel writers were intentionally lying about Jesus' resurrection, would they have women be so crucial in the eyewitness testimony. Why? Because nobody would believe it. If it's there, what does it say? It happened. Think about it. The fact that their testimony had no credibility in their day and age, the only reason it's credible to you and I today is because it's there. Also, if, if this is fictional... Is there any way a known liar would be second to testify? I mean, think about it. If this is Jesus' followers performing a will to power, would they include their failures? No. It tells us that they're telling us the truth. This is history. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us, and he writes about 10 uh, to 12 years after Jesus' resurrection. He says, listen, Jesus appeared to some 500 people before he ascended to heaven. He says, many of them are still alive. In other words, he's saying, go talk to them. Ask them if I'm lying. Jesus was raised from the dead. I know that there's very little debate now about the historicity of the life and death of Jesus. The majority of the debate is over his resurrection. But think about why the enemy might want it that way. If all you have is the life and the death, you have sadness, hopelessness, uncertainty. You add the resurrection to the mix, you have joy, hopefulness, and confidence. If you just look objectively at the data, it takes more blind faith to believe that he wasn't raised than to believe that he was. The legs of this chair can hold you. Sit down and give yourself a rest. Look at the people around you enjoying these same chairs and this same rest. First, our belief is bolstered as we listen to the eyewitnesses, but second, our belief is bolstered as we walk with Jesus for a while. Go back to the story. Not only did these two travelers lack belief and its benefits because they ignored eyewitness testimony, but they also uh, lacked uh, belief in its benefits because they really just needed to walk with the resurrected Jesus for a while. They just needed to experience him and to know that he was alive. So you say to me, Ted, how can I do that? Jesus has ascended. How do I walk with him? And my answer to you is you do it the exact same way as these two. You walk through the Bible in community. Look at this. Verse 16 reads, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. These are two pretty good friends of Jesus. The verb were kept is a divine passive. It means that something outside of them was happening to them. Verse 31 reads, and then their eyes were opened. Again, a divine passive saying that God allowed them to recognize Jesus. What is up with that? Now think, what warmed their hearts? What filled their hearts with faith in the resurrection? Not a physical appearance of Jesus, the Bible. Look at it, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he being Jesus, although they didn't know it was Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 32, they said of their experience prior to knowing that it was Jesus walking with them, they did not talk about uh, Jesus being shown to them when they spoke to each other. They only talk about the Bible. Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road and he opened to us the scriptures? What does this mean? By revealing, by, by hiding and then revealing his identity, Jesus is showing them and us that what we have in Scripture is enough to be able to walk with him, to have our hearts burn with faith, to be transformed from sadness to joy and hopelessness to hopefulness and from disorientation uh, to certainty. At some point, you have to sit down in the chair and you have to read the word as if he's alive and as as if he's teaching you. When you do, you'll know for sure that he's risen and that he's alive. Now, I know this is a somewhat awkward close because I'm, I'm basically done, but I'm going to pick this idea up again next week. 
But let me just ask you a question. As your pastor and as your shepherd, besides coming to worship, what two major things do I want for you? Go to worship. Live in community. Do you see this? They don't figure it out on their own. They're an interdependent community. And, and third, I want you to read the Bible every day with Jesus as the hero. We'll talk about it more next week, but I wonder why I would want you to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have said about your ascension to heaven that we have it better than those who are with you in person, that your Holy Spirit is within us and you have told us to keep in step with your Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not just die for us and go to heaven to prepare a place for us, but you've poured your Spirit out into us and between us to give us hope and joy and steadfastness. We thank you, Jesus, that all the scriptures are about you, that when we read the Old Testament, it's not telling us what we have to do to gain the Father's love. It's telling us what you did so that we could be loved. Jesus, we thank you that faith is a gift and that you have given this gift to us. Lord, I have friends here who are trying to figure this out. I want to ask you to help them, to reveal yourself to them to show them the beauty of Christ, that they may walk with him for a while in community and the word. Lord, I, I have friends here who are overwhelmed with hard times and they need to be surrounded by community, pointing to the word, telling them of the hope of the resurrection, that you, Jesus, are the first fruits and that we will certainly follow. Holy Spirit, I wanna ask that you would come and help us to see that in putting ourselves within the boundary of relationship and within the boundary of Bible reading, we will experience intense freedom, intense joy, intense hope, and incredible steadfastness. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. There are three great meals in the Bible. Uh, the first is the Passover meal. The second is the Lord's Supper. And the third is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the new heaven and the new earth. In this meal, we obviously proclaim the death of Jesus, his body torn and his blood poured out. But at the same time, uh, we look forward to, this is a precursor to uh, that meal which we will enjoy with Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth. And so this table is for those who believe that he lived perfectly, uh, he died horrifically, and he was raised again into glory. Jesus said in Matthew 26, he said, as he was giving the Lord's Supper, he said, I want you to keep doing this until I come back. But he says, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He's talking about when he comes back and establishes his kingdom in totality. He's saying, this is gonna remind you of my death, but I also want it to remind you of my return. Again, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is not New City's table. This is Jesus's table. I want to encourage you to come and feed on him and have your faith built up in him.